I'm Amy Antonucci, and I'm here to welcome you to our True Tales live show on the last day of April. Coming to you from Portsmouth Public Media TV, Channel 98 in New Hampshire. Thanks to those watching and listening, and a special thanks to our studio audience. Give yourself a hand. We're so glad to have you here. Wonderful. Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide a space for people to tell their first-person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural heritage and diversity, and help us bridge differences and build understanding and respect for all. While we encourage the development of storytelling skills with our monthly workshops and other assistance we give to tellers, this is not a competition. We have no ranking or scoring or judging here tonight. We truly believe that sharing our stories with each other uplifts and binds us together, and that is why we're here. The theme for tonight's show is Baby Steps, <laughs> which feels perfect for me because I had goats born on our farm this, this month, and they are taking their little baby steps. <laughs> so we'll hear from five tellers tonight, Pat Spaulding, Paul Doncaster, Nancy Brown, Matthew Francis, and Tina Charpentier. They each have a 10-minute limit for their telling, and each will be introduced to you um, mostly by our MC Pat Spaulding. But since she's telling a story, she won't introduce herself. We'll deal with that soon. After the storytelling, you can stay tuned for an interview with one of our tellers. Tonight, David will be talking with Nancy Brown. But first, for the stories. And um, I will start us off here introducing Pat. Pat Spaulding is a writer and storyteller who's been telling tales locally since the early 80s. She's been married and single, a puppeteer and not a puppeteer. Pat enjoys dress-up occasions and the celebrity of being a majorette with the leftist marching band and our, <laughs> and our MC here at True Tales Live. She studied mime in her youth and still considers that a valid career move. <laughs> Actually, all of Pat's career moves have been the result of one unplanned step following the next, as you will hear in her story tonight, toddling into puppetry. It's a pleasure to introduce Pat. Come on up, Pat. Hi there. When I was four years old, my favorite toy was a great big life-size bear. It stood on all four feet, and its back was about five feet off the floor, and there were wheels on the ends of each of its feet that rolled, and around its great big thick neck there was a collar and a rope, and I could pull on that rope, and my bear would follow me down the street until we got to Cumming Street, and then there was a slight decline, and I'd climb on top of my bear, and I'd ride him slowly down Cumming Street until it leveled off on the Litchfield Road. My bear was not real. He was a fantasy. But my baby brother Dean was real. And when he was born, he got all the attention for four years. I was like an only child. I got all of my parents' attention, and then not anymore. So I had to do something. I had to be in charge of something. I made up my bear. And at night, 
I would put myself to sleep by imagining rolling down that hill slowly and then pulling him down the Litchfield Road where everybody would look out their windows and be impressed. I like that part because I was in charge, this great big bear. I don't know when I gave up this fantasy. Probably when my brother got old enough to be interesting and I started bossing him around. <laughs> we had a good childhood, an ideal childhood. We were raised by parents who were basically responsible older siblings. They played with us really well. And we'd do things during the week and come back on the weekends from outdoor adventures and we'd all cuddle together on the couch and we would watch the magical world of Disney. When you wish upon a star, <laughs> make no difference who you are. I don't know, Jiminy Cricket and Tinkerbell and Donald and Daisy Duck and the mouses. I wanted to stay right there on that couch with my family all close by and just sink into the magical world of Disney for the rest of my life. <laughs> I don't want to grow up. But such, such things happen. And so went to high school. Next step was college. No plan to do anything when I was there, but I was ready to leave my hometown, and college would provide at least a, a larger pool of boyfriends from whom to choose, so <laughs> I went. Late 60s, boom, UNH. Oh my God, nobody was planning their future. It was all about the present. It was vibrating with protests and sit-ins and love and, and happenings and hippies. It was too much to take in. There was something going on every single minute, and I was right in the middle of it. I extended my childhood all through college. <laughs> Never really had to knuckle down to anything. Just kind of experimented with this or that. Took any course I wanted. Drama, dance, writing, ornithology. <laughs> I really loved the field trips. But when it came to identifying birds, not so good. I do remember there was this black bird with red wings, and it was even a multiple choice test. <laughs> I got it wrong. I did not check off red-winged blackbird. I got a D in ornithology, which was kind, but I managed to get a BA in art, graduate from college, and that prepared me to go home and waitress <laughs> and wait for something to happen. But it was okay because my parents and I got along and this was temporary and so long as I was leaving, they didn't mind and I didn't mind. And My brother Dean was going to school up in Maine someplace and he'd come back some weekends and so we were still together. It was a pretty good unit for now, biding my time. Well, my friend Nancy, who also graduated from college as an art major with me, had made some hand puppets while we were there. I had two, it was part of an art project. She put her puppets into an art exhibit of handmade toys. Somebody asked her, would she do a puppet show three months from that time? She didn't have one, but she called me. I said, well, three months, yeah, we can put it together better than waitressing. So we pulled our puppets, one of which was Princess Boom Boom Baboom with the magic lips. <laughs> and then there was Spider-Man, this big fuzzy spider with only six legs, not a true arachnid, and sneakers on the end of each one, little red sneakers, and he wore shades. There were other puppets. I added more. We put together some fractured fairy tales, became silver penny puppets. 
you must have a silver penny to enter fairyland. We put together the variety show. On the appointed time, it was a success. That got us a couple of birthday party bookings. And then it was the library circuit and the schools. And before we even made any decision, we were in business. We were puppeteers. We hit the road with our shows, and that went on for a couple of years, and things went pretty well. We needed a new show. So had to dig deep back into the fantasies. What to do next? Both of us liked Oscar Wilde's story, The Selfish Giant. By this time, Nancy and I were living upstairs, third floor apartment in Newburyport, Massachusetts. So we had all of our sewing machines and puppet paraphernalia and uh, typewriters. And we started envisioning this new show. It could be bigger because now we knew what we were doing. So this is going to be a big show. When my brother Dean died in a drowning accident, this flattened my world. Any expectation I had for my future was shattered. I mean, he was going to be the uncle to my kids when I got around to have them, and I was going to be the aunt to his, and, and we were both going to help my parents when they got older, and we were going to be together. We were going to be. Now he was gone. Nothing mattered. The future was gone. That's it. Done. I mean, what matters? All I had was the present. And the only thing that mattered in the present was the work the work of building this new show, getting this new vision, this new fantasy up, bringing it into reality. I began to work like I never worked before in my life. Every waking hour that I was not working was an hour when I was mourning the loss of my brother. So Nance and I just put together this big castle stage, and she made this giant who was wonderful, came up from above, and I made the kids down below, and I became the weather and changed costume and danced around as winter, summer, spring, and fall around the <laughs> castle, and we had two birds, Aurora and Boring Alice. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't part of the original story, but Nancy had made them, and they were cool characters, so they became the little Greek chorus that commented one when It was a good show. It was a big show. We hit the road, more schools, more libraries, two years, until we got to the point where there was too much togetherness. We were living together. We were building shows together. We were performing together. We were eating together. Uh, it was straining the friendship. And we knew that we could not continue this business and stay friends. So we split up. We dropped the business. Nancy stayed in Newburyport. I came to Seacoast, New Hampshire. And because puppetry was my only skill, marketable skill, I made uh, a one-person show called it Hey Penny Theater, Hit the Road. The years went by. It was pretty good. It worked. I knew what I was doing. But let me tell you, performing puppet shows is not a way to meet men. <laughs> I had had boyfriends here and there, and, but I never could decide to marry one. I was taught when you met somebody that you wanted to marry, you'd know it. I never knew it. And I was pushing 40. So I was like, oh, geez. Oh, well. I got a card in the mail from a secret admirer. There was a phone number and an invitation to dinner. What did I have to lose? I called him up. Went out to dinner with David. That was his name. He was a charmer. 
And four months later, we were married. <laughs> this was no baby step. This was a big leap of faith. But I was ready for a change, and David was too. And we gave each other that. We sure did. Now, David liked my job better than his. He earned his living as a mechanic. But he was also a DJ and a musician. So he had a great voice, and he had some stage presence, and mechanical up the wazoo. We could add lights and sound, and our shows could get bigger. And so they did get bigger. And I reached down into the depths of my dreams for another fantasy and came up with my childhood. I never wanted to leave my childhood. I made up a, a late bloomer story about a kangaroo <clears throat> who would not leave his mother's pouch. And I made a kangaroo costume for myself. I became Mama Roo. That was as close to motherhood as I ever became, but it was close enough. And in my pouch, I had Joey, a hand puppet, who wouldn't leave. And then Beanikins was born, and they argued, and he kicked her out, and then he had to save her. It was a big story. And there was uh, Ned the Swagman and Matilda the Emu, full-size bird, and koalas and kookaburras, and we toured it across the country and down south and around New England. And then another show with Pindar's box opening up all the vices coming out and turned into Br'er Rabbit Tales. And because we could get bigger, we did get bigger. And the environment was on our minds. This was in the early 90s, and the earth was already going to pot. So we made Trash World. It was a residency show. There were kids, you know, middle schoolers, about 60 or 70, that took on different roles. And David was trash man, and I was the director. And there were cues and lights and sound. And oh my god, we got ourselves into something that was way bigger than we could handle. Just because you can get bigger doesn't mean you should. <laughs> we needed a downsize, something small, something manageable, without all that technology that we could perform outdoors, something easy. I reached down into the depths of my dream and came up with, David, how'd you feel about wearing a bear suit? <laughs> he said, okay. And that was the birth of Mr. Bear and Company. Story skits and dancing bits with an environmental theme. David got in a full bear suit <laughs> with a pork pie hat on top of his head. Me, I wore a ranger hat. I became Ranger Pat, Mr. Bear's keeper. And off we went. The show was a success. And it was even picked up by um, New York Arts and the Parks Department. So for over 10 years, we traveled into and out of the city, performing at all these little inner city parks. Um, and came back to put our shows up in schools and libraries, the bears and kangaroos. Oy, 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 oy. For about 16 years, we did this. Now, there was a point that we hit that Nancy and I had hit long ago. Nancy and I knew that we had to get out of this business in order to stay friends. But David and I didn't stop the business because at a certain point, we were the characters we inhabited. That's all we knew. That was our life. So we just kept going until eventually the marriage faltered and failed. But not before I realized that my unintentional career in puppetry had come full circle. From a four-year-old's fantasy 
about being in charge of my bear. It evolved to a 54-year-old's reality of being in charge? Not so much. There was a lot in my life that I wasn't in charge of. But I was in charge of my fantasies. And I made a lot of characters, stories come to life that are still real to me. I never did get to know that guy that wore the bear suit. But man, I got to know and love Mr. Bear. <laughs> because Mr. Bear was my fantasy. Mr. Bear was my bear. <laughs> <laughs> Doncaster from Weymouth, Massachusetts. He is the father of two truly outstanding young women. He's been telling stories since 2016 and for the past 12 years has worked as a user experience researcher and designer, which means that he gets to listen to other people's stories and use their words to make their online experiences more efficient and pleasurable. If you're lucky, says Paul, the circle of life is not simply a symbolic representation of birth, survival, death, and renewal. Sometimes the circle manifests itself in unexpected ways. I do concur. <laughs> in the words and sentiments of those who have seemingly been on the outskirts. Let's find out more in his story, The Hands That Held Mine. The hands that held mine were not those of my daughter, but to anybody who happened to be on Whitehorse Beach that afternoon, they easily could have been. Erin was somewhere between two and three years old, with bright red hair and seriously fair skin, which I clearly do not have. <laughs> but my new girlfriend did, and her presence was a very big deal, at least in my head. My father's one of six. My mother is one of 10. I have 46 first cousins. <laughs> and that summer that I was 32, and never having been in a real long-term relationship, I know there were serious questions being lobbed between both the Doncaster side and the McGillany side that maybe Paul didn't have the stuff to contribute to this family trait. But things have been going so well for so long with this, this new girlfriend that I invited her to my family's annual 4th of July cookout. And we took Erin, daughter of one of the 46, down to the beach that afternoon. And we held her hands as across the street, down the steps, as we dug in the sand, hunted for shells, dipped her in and out of the waves. We laughed, we played, we had fun, a lot of fun. And any passerby would have mistaken us me and a big redhead and a little redhead, for a new family just starting out. And I started to get the sense that maybe 
finally, my life was about to take a turn. The wedding was four years later, and my own daughters came along in 2002 and 2004. So I had multitudes of moments like this. And I was convinced that I finally had the life of connection and true commitment that I always hoped I'd have. Until one night, 15 years later, I discovered that I didn't. And along with all the hurt and the anger and the guilt and the shame that goes, on, that goes along with a discovery like that, the thing I was having the hardest time dealing with was the sense that I'd failed my girls. I had to have the difficult conversations that no parent ever wants to have with their children and guide them through new uncertainties that they didn't want or ask for or understand. And more than anything, I had a very strong need to make sure that the place that they knew as home remained a place where they felt safe and secure and protected, because that's what fathers do. This all happened to coincide with the onset of my own father's cancer, which made the guilt even more overwhelming. At a time when he and my mother both needed the support of their own children more than ever, I felt like a 51-year-old burden. <clears throat> but we became closer in those months than we had been in years. We found out new things about each other, told each other secrets that none of us had ever heard before. We were driving down to Connecticut one afternoon to watch my nephew play football, and he started waxing poetic about his time in the service in the late 50s. Uh, he became increasingly proud of that in those, in those final months. And he started telling me about all the different jobs he had. Apparently, when you're an enlisted man, you have all types of jobs. And uh, he was telling me about one on the boat from California to Okinawa. He said, I was in charge of the animals. And I went, in charge of the animals? This is new. Never heard this before. So were you in charge of like the, the police, the MP dogs, or were you involved in some top secret, some top secret, you know, porpoise thing that, that you know, <laughs> you know, sniffing out mines? And he said, no, no, no. Um, if any of the officers who were being transferred and stationed over in Okinawa were bringing any animals with them, I, I took care of them. I went, oh. So you were a pet sitter in the army? <laughs> and he laughed and said, it's actually worse than that. I was a pet sitter on the third shift, 11 to 7. <laughs> we had a dynamite time. We had a million moments like that. It was almost as if he'd looked his cancer straight in the face and said, you're just going to have to sit your butt in the corner for a while. My kid needs me. He got me through the most difficult period I've ever had in my life. Because that's what fathers do. Shortly after the divorce was final, as if he timed it exactly to be this way, his health took a serious turn for the worse. And a month later, I delivered his eulogy. At the after-funeral you know, reception, um, I had to take a break from all of the stories and, and anecdotes about my dad that were flying all over the place. And I went to the bar. And I was standing there, and I heard my name called out. And I turned, and it was Aaron. Still with the red hair and the fair skin, but now 23 years old, a strong, beautiful, confident young woman just starting out, 
who, turns out, had also been raised in the aftermath of a busted marriage. I can't guarantee you that these were her exact words, but this is what I remember hearing. She said, for whatever it's worth, Paul, I've been paying attention to your story for the past year, and I know you're probably really worried about the impact all this is having on your girls. And as someone who grew up in that situation, I want you to know that from where I sit, you're doing all the right things. And believe me, as long as you keep doing them, the girls are going to come out of this just fine. I stammered something that ended with thank you. And she gave me a hug. And then she turned and disappeared into the crowd. Where I once held her hands, now she was holding mine. And they weren't just Aaron's hands. They were also the hands of my father and my mother and both of my sisters and most of the 46 first cousins <laughs> and every friend and family member who'd ever shut, set the good example and let me know that things were going to be okay and that I wouldn't be alone. The circle of life is as wondrous as it is dispassionate. When allowed to churn in an environment of goodness and honesty and decency, the good stuff sown early comes back to you in exquisite ways, from people you might not expect, at the times you need it most. From out of that crowd, I saw my own two daughters coming toward me. And one of them said, so how you doing, Dad? And I placed my hands in theirs. The circle continues. Thank you for listening. Good story. <laughs> I love it when that happens. Nancy Brown lived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, for over 40 years. She's kept herself busy raising two amazing children while staying involved and active in several Portsmouth citizens groups like Portsmouth Listens, which focuses on concerns about growth and development. Yes, we are concerned. Nancy is a retired high school and community health and wellness educator. She has traveled through many different walks of life and experienced different cultures as a Peace Corps volunteer and an activist and organizer in rural Appalachia. In tonight's story, she'll take us to the Guatemalan border of southern Belize, where she lived and worked with Mayan Indian families in villages inside the forest. Has anyone here ever heard of uh, Ferdelance? Oh, my cousin has. Would you care to tell us what it is? It's a poisonous snake. It's a poison, she's right. Well, Nancy's gonna fill us in a little further with her story, sometimes no steps, be still. <laughs> Hello, thank you guys for coming. Good evening. Um, I'm sharing two 
uh, stories, life experiences that um, took my breath away while working in Central America as um, Pat just, uh, as she was introducing me as a Peace Corps volunteer. Um, I lived in Portsmouth, raised my family here, and when they were uh, taking off to go off to college, and I thought it's time to do some things that I had thought about doing for years. So because I had a background in public health, um, I applied um, to go into the Peace Corps, and within about three months, two or three months, I was accepted, and I was very excited. And they often give you a, based on what your background is, um, a choice of a number of places to, um, you know, countries to work in and what's needed. And I chose to go to Belize because I felt that was the closest place in terms of my children coming to visit. And my daughter was in New York at the time. My son was in California at the time. Um, so I accepted and made a two-year commitment. And um, once I got to Belize or any Peace Corps volunteer, they really um, there's a training program. You learn about the country, you learn about their history, their government, their culture, um, the laws, what's acceptable in terms of your behavior as a person living and working with the, with the people. And I was primarily working with um, um, Mayan Indian families who lived in southern Belize on the Guatemalan uh, border, and they lived in these very rural villages in the forest. Um, I lived in a small town called Punta Gorda, which was right on the Caribbean Sea, and it was absolutely beautiful. Um, and to go to the different villages, we often um, we were in a um, usually a van, um, four-wheel drive vehicle or a jeep because they were uh, pretty rough dirt roads and stuff. And some villages, you could only go so far, and then you had to walk from one village to the next down a path. Um, so. After, my, one of my first stories um, is after working in the village of San Vicente, um, visiting with families, that was my job as a health worker, helping train somebody from that village to be a, a, like a community health worker um, because there were no doctors or nurses in those villages. Um, um, I was leaving that village after being in San Vicente. You'd stay there for a day or two. And um, I decided what I would like to do is walk off onto the next village by myself um, through the forest. Um, and so I decided to start off uh, by myself. And it was the length of going from one village to the next was maybe, it, my um, estimation was maybe two or three blocks. And I started walking through the dense forest. And I was um, you know, walking through the bush, um, amazing. Um, in awe, being by myself, with all its beauty and wonder, it made me think about like you know all the stuff you'd see in the National Geographic and whatever. Um, and I was careful what I was doing. Um, and then all of a sudden, as I'm walking quietly down through a path, sort of like right, right here, like between these two rows of seats, um, I noticed something in the bush, and um, to the right, just ahead of me, and. There is movement on the ground, and then all of a sudden, within a moment, a second, an enormous, huge snake comes out of that side of the bush and begins to cross the path. And I immediately stopped. I froze. I don't think I was even breathing. I didn't even blink my eyes. 
because the snake was so big. And we had been taught that there were many poisonous snakes in the forest in, in Central and South America. Um, I stopped breathing, and then I looked, and I looked again, and as it crossed the path, it stopped. And it raised its head up, and it took a look at me, and I thought, oh, my God. And I just didn't move. I became like a tree in the forest. And then what seemed like a really long time passed, and finally the snake put its head down and then slithered across the rest of the path. And when it got to the other side, going into the forest, it stopped again, and I knew not to move. Don't even take one step. Don't move. And all of a sudden, the snake started up again, and it continued off into the forest. And then I remembered what I was taught by one of the most wonderful Mayan people that I worked with, Tomas Teul, who said, one thing to remember, Nancy, is you do not walk in the forest by yourself. You always have someone with you. And also, and then gave me this instruction, in case you are with someone, or if you ever are by yourself, make sure you do not move, that you stop. You just don't move until that snake moves out of your presence. So was it a fertile ants? I'm not sure. It was a huge snake with a huge head, and it had like a yellowish chin and colored scales. And um, to this day, and a very broad head, um, to this day, I think it was a fertile ants, but I, I'm not absolutely sure. And the two years while I was there, there were several people who had died from being bitten by the snake, that particular snake. So um, here's another story. I'm going into another village several weeks later. And I'm working in that village with um, one of the Mayan people who um, we're working with them, teaching them to be um, health workers in their village to help people with, you know, kind of basic illnesses and, you know, you know infections and even learning how to deliver babies and stuff. And um, I stayed in this household with the fa that family, Juan and his family. I stayed in the household, and where we slept at night was in um, hammocks. So it was the end of the day, and um, it was still light outside, and you could still hear children playing out, the boys maybe out in the field playing kickball and stuff. And so I'm just kind of resting, laying in the, in the hammock, and all of a sudden you heard a child crying. And someone came through the house, and the household dirt floor, stick walls, thatch roof. So here's a boy about 12 years old, one of the two brothers, bringing in his younger brother, and he's got him hanging onto him. And the boy is crying and weeping, and, and obviously in serious pain. And shows the father immediately the boy has been bitten on his ankle by a snake. And the, they're speaking in the Mayan language, which I learned very little, but I could understand a little bit of what they were saying. And immediately the mother and the father picked up the boy and put him in a, a hammock and called for the traditional healer. And not all the villages had traditional healers, but this particular one did. And within a moment or two, it seemed like that a traditional healer came through the door, looked at the boy that was in the hammock, said, he's been bitten by a poisonous snake. And all of a sudden, the older brother forgets 
what he had done and has a second, he goes, oh, mother, father, I must show you. And he opens up something he's wrapped in big leaves and it's the head of the snake. So the snake that had bitten his brother, he had his machete with him and he immediately pulled off the machete and cut off the snake's head. And all the more the traditional healer knew that there's something we could do now. We could make a poultice with this. So he sent out some of the other men in the village out into the field and they had to pick certain medicinal plants. And within, it seemed like a short time, I'm laying in the hammock the whole time watching this in awe. And the parents are by the child. I did get out every once in a while asking if out of the hammock, could I help you? Is there something I can do? You know, and I would help with the older brother, and they also had a little daughter and stuff. But um, eventually, the men brought back these herbs, and what they did was they, the traditional healer, he cut and he, he mashed this stuff, and he um, made it into a poultice, like um, pestle and, what do they call it, mortar and pestle. And then the rest of the night, I watched this traditional healer sitting next to the little boy who was laying in the hammock and put this poultice on the child all night. And, once in, and the mother and father would be there comforting the boy as best that they could. And you could tell the boy was poisoned. I mean, his, his ankle was swollen, he had been bleeding, and his face, the color, had changed. You know, you could really very, tell he was very sick and in lots of pain. And they did that all night. And I remember falling asleep, waking up, falling asleep, waking up. And in the morning, when the light sort of came through the cracks in the house, the stick walls, um, the little boy started to make some sounds and talked and spoke a little bit with his parents. And it was so amazing for me to see how this traditional healer, which, by the way, you know, shamanism, has existed for thousands of years. And that's where some of the very first medicine ever came from. So here I witnessed this, laying in this hammock all night, um, watching this little boy's life, sort of, where he was kept alive. And I, um, that's, that's my second story. And I'm sharing with you this because um, I also want to encourage people, if you have any interest in life doing some interesting, totally different things, is to go and work in another country with another group of people, like other cultures. Um, you think of the, the um, Mayan, the ancient civilization of Mayans, over 3,000 years, and here are these people still alive. I went back several years ago and visited and um, went with a dear friend of mine and a friend that's sitting here. My daughter also came to visit. Um, but I went back like five, six years ago with a friend. And when I went into some of the villages, one of the first things that they said um, was, Miss Nancy, Miss Nancy, let us show you how things have changed. For example, in the village of um, um, San Jose, when I'd come to the household, they'd say, look, let us show you what we have. And each of the households had a water pump. Not just one water pump for the whole village of 55 families, but each household had a water pump. Not a sink like you and I have, but a water pump right outside their house so that they had good water now. You know? And in some of the houses, those houses had one electrical outlet because the children were now learning the base you know, technology. And there was a generator in, in the village. So, Things were changing, but I don't know how long this will, these children will stay there, they'll go off and, you know, 
you know, get participate in other aspects of what the world is all about today. But it was a wonderful life experience, and um, I encourage you. We could all take a trip together if you'd like sometime. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Nancy. I think you're just a little more adventurous than I am. <laughs> Matthew Francis is an educational speaker and author of the book, My Resurrected Spirit. He received his degree in sociology at the University of Southern Maine and teaches workshops for transitions as part of adult education classes. Matthew speaks nationally on issues of mental health, suicide prevention, and LGBTQ issues. He is the host of two talk shows in Maine and New Hampshire. One right here, correct? Yes, the PPM TV. In his free time, he enjoys sacred circle dance, hiking, kayaking, spending time with friends, and he loves to tell a good story. His story is titled, Basement Years. Come on up, Matthew. I may be an educational speaker, but this is my first time storytelling. So. <laughs> my mother tells the story of the first time, uh, my first baby steps. She said that I didn't crawl much, I just got up one day and ran. <laughs> I was early, apparently nine, uh, nine months old, and the doctor told her to slow me down or I would get bowed legs. Well, I do have bowed legs. <laughs> I don't have many stories of my childhood. My mom and I aren't close. We haven't spoken in years, actually. My family comes from generational trauma. We pass down violent physical and emotional abuse as our family heirloom. It is part of our culture to not stay connected to each other. I choose, I choose myself as there is no growth I, or movement in my family to reconcile. They disown me, and I guess I sort of disown them. I do love them very much, and I forgive them, but I know it's healthier to not have them in my life. It was during a dark time in my life that I would learn the true meaning of baby steps. I had experienced a major depressive episode and ended up in the hospital. When I was released, I wound up getting a basement apartment. It received very little sunlight. If I truly wanted to know the weather, I would actually have to go outside and around the building to find out. It contributed a great deal to my depression. It was always so dark. I was also, at that time, living a basement mentality. There was no hope or joy in the life that I was currently living. The way I spent my days was the majority of the time watching Netflix, eating, and smoking. And what I realized is nobody had any expectations for me, and I had none for myself beyond collect a disability check, take my medication, and stay out of trouble. The majority of the interactions that I had were with mental health providers, which would maybe be once a week. So in, in an average day, if I even saw one person for an hour, that was a big deal. There was, no, there was one particular conversation that left me yearning to do more with my life. John, I said, I want to do more with my life. It's very boring and it's pointless. Well, he said, do you keep a clean house? Well, he knew I did. I often bragged about it. <laughs> do you pay your bills and you go grocery shopping, he asked. I sure do. I said, sitting up a little straighter, hoping this was leading somewhere. <laughs> well, he said, what more is there? <laughs> I, 
I remember it felt like a kick in the gut. My life was being summed up by activities of daily living, and it hurt. So I began to be curious about what my true potential was. I began to embark on a journey of self-care. I found that if I treated my body well, I simply felt better. I quit smoking a 22-year, two-pack-a-day habit. I began exercising, having lost 30 pounds, praying and meditating. I was healthier than I'd been in years. It was during a meditation that I found it. It was a lump. At first, I thought, maybe this is just from lifting too much weight. Maybe I just pulled a muscle, only it didn't hurt. I waited a couple weeks. I talked it over with my friends, and I was convinced that I should go and have it checked out. And it turned out to be the most aggressive cancer on the planet, triple negative invasive ductile carcinoma, and it was going into my lymph nodes. Upon receiving the news, I was calm. Somehow, deep down, I think I already knew it was cancer. Of course it was. My life was getting better. The question for me was, what am I going to do? Initially, I decided that I was going to let the cancer overtake me. I planned a private retreat with my sole intention to make peace with God. I was 41, and when I reflected on the memories I had, it was pretty bleak. I had to look death straight in the eyes. I had to seriously inventory my life. I had so much regret. So I decided that I would do surgeries, but I was going to withheld intravenous chemotherapy and radiation. But I was in physical therapy when she asked, why haven't you started chemotherapy yet? She seemed genuinely perplexed. I told her, I'm not going to. If I die, it's okay with me. I'm not sure I want to live. We looked each other straight in the eyes for a couple minutes. It felt like much longer. I felt my conviction wane a little. She broke off eye contact and went straight to the phone. I had no idea what she was going to do, but openly, in front of my very eyes, she called my nurse and arranged my first chemo treatment. <laughs> she came back to the table, resumed our PT, and stated matter-of-factly, sometimes we have too many choices. <laughs> I was stunned. I don't think I said anything. I went home, though, and I decided that I would give my life another chance. I wanted to know, in fact, I'd been desperate to know, what am I capable of? What is my potential? When I looked death in the eyes the next time, I don't want so many regrets. It was an arduous nine months of intravenous chemo, surgeries, infections, and radiation. Once the dust settled and I felt barely alive, I had to learn how to live. Having cancer provided a great template for me. I was a hero. I was brave. I was courageous. It wasn't my fault. <laughs> Strangers and friends visited often, provided cards, flowers, meals. I received so much attention. I was overwhelmed with all the love. How do I pick up the pieces of a life I hadn't particularly wanted? One of the first things I did was apply the cancer paradigm to my life of trauma and trauma-related mental health. I decided abuse and mental illness equally were not my fault that I truly was brave and courageous. I was able to shed the guilt and shame that was really never mine in the first place. I decided I wanted some of the good stuff that life has to offer, and I was still desperate to know my potential. So I got a new apartment, one that was full of sunlight. I began to remedy my social skills. I wrote and published my resurrected spirit. I started two, two talk shows. I made a choice. I chose life. Thank you.
we're glad you made that choice. <laughs> Tina Chapentier lives in Dover, New Hampshire, and works at Dover High School currently. For 21 years, she was in the New Hampshire Air National Guard Communications Unit, installing and maintaining phone, radio, computer, and network connections. When she saw the theme for tonight's show, Baby Steps, she thought of the women in Saudi Arabia. When stationed there in 1992, Tina experienced some of the restrictions that are a daily reality for women who live in that country. She couldn't drive there and had to wear a traditional covering when she was off duty, although recently laws were passed allowing women to drive. Some of the activists who worked for that right still remain in jail. It's only a baby step for women's rights. There's so much more to do. Tina's going to tell us a story tonight titled Hiding in Plain Sight. So I was stationed in Saudi Arabia in 1992 in the Air Force. And after work one day, I got myself in a sticky situation with a couple of buddies I thought I wouldn't get out of. And I couldn't say or do anything but kind of just ride it out and hope we get out of there undiscovered. See, a few days earlier, my first sergeant, Charlie, comes in and says, hey, you want to go see the US play the Ivory Coast in a soccer game for the King Fod Cup? I got three tickets. Well, there's nothing to do in Saudi Arabia, let me tell you. So even though I'm not much of a soccer fan, I'm like, yeah, okay, sure, you know? And yeah, when I was off duty, not in my uniform, I had to wear the abaya, you know, the covering and the scarf. I didn't have to wear the face covering piece. The guys just had to wear a button-up shirt and pants when they went out. But the day of the game, now, Charlie comes in and says, oh, by the way, uh, women aren't exactly allowed to go to soccer games here, so, oh no, still go, he says, but just wear a loose shirt, you know, and uh, pants, and, and kind of just don't say anything and blend in. <laughs> It'll be fine, he says. And I have no idea why I still did it. I mean, now knowing the no women allowed rule, right? Kind of like the little rascals He-Man Woman Haters Club. <laughs> but, <laughs> but prior to all that, I had gotten my hair cut at Escon Village where we lived by the Sri Lanka guy that everybody went to. And I asked him, you cut ladies' hair too? He goes, oh yes, yes. Turns out it's the only English he speaks or anything. He still cut my hair just like all the guys had a haircut. So, just... <laughs> so between my haircut and uh, I've wasn't ever really visited by the boob fairy, so <laughs> a loose-fitting shirt wasn't a stretch. I still went along, and I don't know why. I immediately regretted it the minute we got out of the car. I mean, uh, the place was crawling with armed guards with machine guns, right? I mean, I know we're there in the military, but this was a soccer game for Pete's sake. <laughs> and I couldn't say, hey, you guys, let's get out of here, because already I couldn't say anything for fear of giving myself away, so off we go. Well, the other guy, we had three tickets. So Tom went along, too. He was from the office, and he brought um, the flag we have there. You know, every military office has a flag, and it's about six foot tall. It has two, metal, uh, two wooden pieces that come apart, and it had that brass eagle on the top, made it real official. So he's got that with him, and at the, we get to the entrance of this place, and all of a sudden, guards come from all over the place, uh, making a big to-do about this flag. 
which was good. I mean, Tom was taking the brunt of the situation, which was fine with me, but they were, there was a bunch of yelling. They took the flag from him. I mean, Tom wasn't yelling. All the guards were making a big deal. But in the meantime, over here, I, I was being patted down for weapon search. <laughs> but fortunately, because there was a flag, the guy like just did this real quick thing because he wanted to be in on the flag thing, right? <laughs> so, and I go, they took my ticket and I was in the stadium by myself. I couldn't see them anymore. They were still doing whatever the argument was. And I started to think, right? What am I gonna do if they don't come in? What if they don't let them in? Uh, what if I go out to check and they're not there? I mean, I can't drive, I can't call anybody. We didn't have cell phones and we didn't have anything. And I couldn't really tell anybody anything. I couldn't say anything. And I got all these, like, I got a I got hundred more scenarios going on in my head. And it felt like it was taking forever. It was probably two minutes, right? But, but still. <laughs> so they come through with the flag to boot. They just, the guards kept that little brass eagle off the top. Later on, we talked about it way later on. Because uh, I couldn't talk, but we figured they, they probably thought it was a weapon or something. Because, you know, it is a soccer game. Everybody's bringing weapons. <laughs> so we go to our seats, and we had to go, like, up some more rows, you know, like a, any old stadium, really, anywhere. You go up, and there's another checkpoint, and they're all about the flag, thankfully. So I kind of slipped by undetected another time, all with their machine guns, checking this flag. So then we go down into our seats, and we're about 10 rows behind the dugout area. Now, like I said, I'm not a big soccer fan or anything. I don't know what you call that, where the team sits. It's a dugout area. But there was like a chain link fence around it, and of course, about a dozen more armed guards around that, and they're facing me kind of like you are. And we're like 10 rows behind them, so you're back row there with machine guns. At a soccer game, I'll remind you. <laughs> so I'm sitting between Tom and Charlie, and I'm looking around at the tens of thousands of people in here. I'm the only woman in here, unless another one snuck in. <laughs> I, I don't know why. They'd have to be crazy, which... Uh, but, so the, the U.S. team gets a goal, right? So Tom stands up with his flag, and he does his whole thing. Then a bunch of Arabs come closer. Uh -oh. So then they get another goal, and he gets up there and does this flag thing, and they're all coming around now. They really don't care who wins between the U.S. and the Ivory Coast. They just want to sit with the winning team, apparently, right? So now they even want to wave the flag. They get the flag from Tom, and that's a sight I'll never forget, right? It's a bunch of Arab guys in their thobe and everything, waving the American flag. <laughs> right? <laughs> and Tom... He, he was like really unique looking, you know? I mean, he was just really blonde hair, really, really blue eyes. I mean, blonde like his eyebrows and his eyelashes were blonde kind of guy. And I mean, it's kind of opposite of those guys, right? I mean, they got beautiful black hair and everything. I think they liked talking to him. I think they were intrigued that this guy be like that. But so they were becoming really friendly. All these guys around us were really friendly to the point where they introduced themselves and they introduced me. And of course, I'm being as rude as you can be because I'm not going to speak to them. I can't. So I'm sitting there. They introduced me as Martin because my, my full mother yells your name is Martina, right? Mar so that, we hadn't rehearsed any of this and we didn't know what we were getting. <laughs> so that was good thinking. Oh, yeah, that's Martin. Uh, so the closest guy spoke perfect English, which I don't, so that's easy to say, but he, he had this bag of like seeds with him, kind of like we'd take popcorn to a movie or something, and they were sort of like um, sunflower seeds maybe, and he's taking a handful, of, it's, a, it's almost a cloth bag, and he's eating, and he, he 
tells him and spits him, you know, in his mouth. So of course he offers them to all of us, and of course you have to take them when in Rome, right? So you take some seeds. So the rest of the time we're all chewing, spitting seeds <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> and I was still so nervous because I couldn't say, "Can you believe this?" <laughs> and the silence was so notable. I mean, they could feel it, right? I've just never even looked at them. Finally, one of them says, "Hey, Martin, what state are you from?" <laughs> well, there it is. I felt like I was gonna like just throw up, right? I was so scared. And I'm thinking, what's gonna happen? Are they gonna beat us? Are they gonna throw us? They're gonna definitely throw us in jail, but probably it's gonna be worse. I mean, they don't mess around here. And I don't have my abaya on, and I'm not supposed to be, I got all, I, you know, and again, that was probably about 20 seconds later, Tom goes, oh, Martin, he never says anything. He just goes along with us. He's from up in Maine or something. They're like that. <laughs> And they left me alone. They couldn't see my heart coming out because of my loose-fitting shirt. <laughs> well, there's a ton of restrictions over there, you can imagine, right? I mean, the obvious ones, the car and the outfit and the whole, everything was hard. And I, I got a ton of stories like that. But the soccer thing, they did actually, women got baby steps. They can go to soccer games now as of 2018. But... They have their own entrance, only female staff. They are uh, completely enclosed and no contact with male adults and on and on and on. Still progress a little bit, I guess. And you can imagine, I just, I wasn't exactly enjoying this game. <laughs> <laughs> when it was over, man, it, and it was probably a big like Gillette Stadium kind of place. I don't know if you've been to any kind of big stadium, but I practically written to the vehicle as fast as I could because I had to get out of it. I couldn't, I was exhausted. And uh, I just wish I'd have been a better soccer fan though because apparently this team was a really big deal in the soccer world. <laughs> so they actually invited us to a private dinner they had the next night at the hotel they were staying at. The three of us got to go. And yes, I wore my buy and scarf this time. <laughs> to get to the hotel, once we were in their private room, though, I could take it off and be a normal person. I'm not that Arab women aren't a normal person, but I'm not a normal person in a gown, right? <laughs> thing. But <laughs> they actually were really awesome guys, and I wish I'd have been a better fan. I didn't really know. But they got, gave me a, a, a team photo. Each one individually autographed it. And they, they really appreciated the fact that I risked my life hiding in plain sight to come see their kid. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. I'm, I'm sweating here myself. You know, I know it worked out, but still. Whew. <laughs> Thank you so much to all of tonight's wonderful storytellers and to our studio audience. It's just such a fabulous experience to all be here together. Coming up next, we are going to hear an interview um, that David will do with Nancy Brown. But first, let me tell you a few things. Our next True Tales Live show is coming up on Tuesday, May 28th. Our theme is Affecting Change, Standing Up. 
We still have more space for storytellers for that show, and I think all of our 2019 shows, none are completely filled. So email us at truetaleslivenh1, like the number, um, at gmail.com to sign up and join in. And if you want to tell a story, whether you are experienced or brand new to this, we invite you to come to our monthly storytelling workshops held here at PPM-TV, 280 Marcy Street in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, on the first Tuesday of most months, 7.30 to 9. They're free and open to the public. The next one is May 7th. You can watch us on Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m. And anytime as video on demand. You can go to our website, truetaleslivenh.org, to access all of these options in a handy one place. We're really proud of this website. Uh, let's thank some of those who make the show possible. John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, Steve Koval, David Frainer, Sam Adams, and Chad Cordner. Antonucci signing off until our next show and stay tuned because David Frainer is about to come up here and interview Nancy Brown. Thanks everyone. <laughs> <laughs>